You're listening to the Pursue God Truth Podcast, the official channel for faith and life topics at PursueGod.org. Join us every week as we explore new topics from a biblical perspective. Okay, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 2, and today we're going to cover all the way to verse 13. And if you have one of those Bibles, you know, that has headings at the top, this one might have the heading the transfiguration of Jesus. This is when Jesus is going to be transfigured. The disciples, not all of them, but a few of them, are going to go up the mountaintop with him, and he's going to show them who he really is. Now, if you think about it, this is sort of the climax of the Gospel of Mark, because we've been working our way toward this very moment all along. You know, Mark is trying to show the disciples, he's really trying to show all of the readers who Jesus really is. So we've seen his miracles, we've heard his teachings, we've had, you know, the very first verse, Mark says, this this is the good news about the Messiah. So he's telling us right there, this whole gospel, this whole book that he's written is about revealing who Jesus really is. And along the way, it's almost like we're reading the story through the eyes of the disciples. They're slowly opening their eyes to who Jesus really is. Well, today's the payoff. And spoiler alert, here's what we're going to learn in the lesson today. It's that Jesus is more than a prophet of God. He is God. He's fully God. We're going to see that as we go through this, but I want to start with actually a famous quote from a book by C.S. Lewis. This was a guy, maybe you've read the book Mere Christianity. He gave a series of talks over the BBC at the height of World War II, and then those talks were compiled into a book called Mere Christianity. If you've never read it, I highly recommend it. Go check it out. You'll want a copy of that. You want to read that. And here's probably the most famous quote from the book. Here's what he said. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. And here's the quote, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis writes, this is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. You know, maybe you've been listening to these podcasts, you've been following along in this Mark series for months now, and maybe you're still trying to figure out what you think about Jesus. I mean, you'd be crazy not to think that he was a great teacher. He obviously was a great teacher. But really what Lewis is saying, and it's the same thing that Mark, the author of our gospel, is trying to say and trying to bring us to, is to make a decision about who we really think Jesus is. If you think Jesus is just a good teacher, if you think he's like a prophet, a good prophet in the order of 
Moses or Elijah or David or whomever, then you're missing the point. You're missing the point of the Bible. You're missing the point of the gospel of Mark. What Mark is trying to show us is what Jesus was trying to show his disciples. And Jesus was trying to show his disciples who he really is, like what it meant that Jesus is not just fully man, but that Jesus is fully God. And so today's story, as we get into it, the transfiguration is the climax of that journey for the disciples. In a sense, it's where it's where they're going to see him for who he really is. They're going to have this experience, much like the experience that Moses had in the in Mount Sinai when he went up to get the he went up to meet with God and, and he went to get the Ten Commandments. They're going to have a similar experience now. These three disciples are going to, and it's going to change their perspective on Jesus. And I hope as we read the story today, it changes your perspective as well. So if you're still on the fence about who you think Jesus is, then pay attention because this passage is for you. Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 2, it says, Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, just the three of them. You know, we call them the inner circle. A lot of times it's just these three. If you remember a few months back, Jesus healed this 12-year-old girl, and only these three got to go in and witness that healing. And now he's bringing just these three, the inner circle, to experience this thing up this high mountain. And so anyway, Jesus takes these three guys, Peter, James, and John. He leads them up a high mountain to be alone. And as the men watched... Jesus' appearance was transformed, and his clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than any earthly bleach could ever make them. And then Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking with Jesus. Now, in order to really understand the significance of this transfiguration that we're reading about here in Mark chapter 9, you have to go all the way back to Exodus, starting in chapter 19 and going all the way through to chapter 33. So, you know, if you have a chance, if you're not driving, hit pause, go back and read Exodus. It really does give context to what we're reading here in Mark chapter 9. And, you know, this is, remember, God's the one who authored all this, and he's connecting these two things on purpose. You'll see the connection as we read through this, but let me just point some of the stuff out. So first of all, the context for all of that content in Exodus 19 through 33 is, you know, Moses had led the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt. He'd moved them through. They're on their way to the promised land. And they stop along the way for God to give instructions to the people of Israel, the, you know, namely the Ten Commandments. And the way he does this is he calls Moses up. You can read it for yourself, but I'll just give you a summary. He calls Moses up to Mount Sinai, to the top of Mount Sinai on a couple different occasions, and the people are left down below, and Moses gets away, and and God is communicating and revealing his heart to Moses. He's explaining to him the Ten Commandments. He's explaining to him, you know, his heart, his purpose, his desire for the people of Israel. Remember, they're on their way to the Promised Land. It would take them, by the way, 40 years before they got there, but that's where they're heading, 
And so Moses is meeting with God to prepare not just himself and the leaders, but to prepare the people to really understand God's heart and what his desire for their nation is when they get to the promised land. Now, this whole story from Exodus is so important to the Jewish people. I mean, it's it's a story that they would understand. It's a story that they would have been told by their parents who were told the story by their parents all the way on down. So generations and generations of Jewish people would have understood the importance the significance of Moses at Mount Sinai and all the stuff that happened there. Now, we as Gentile readers, we don't necessarily understand that. And so as a result, when we read Mark chapter 9, we're not thinking about the Exodus account, but we should be. In fact, I'm sure that Peter, James, and John had this in mind, or at least in retrospect, they would have thought about it. Certainly, Mark understood the connection between these two things, even as he's writing these words. So let's look again at these words with that Exodus 19 through 33 passage in mind. I mean, so Mark even says, six days later, Jesus took these three guys and led them up to the high mountain. And that that number appears in Exodus 24, verse 16. It was a six-day sojourn from Moses as he was heading to Mount Sinai. So certainly, I think that that's one of the reasons that Mark includes that number. Pillar New Testament Commentary brings out that insight, along with a bunch of other insights we're going to be looking at today. If you haven't picked up that commentary, I really recommend it. It's excellent. Now, Jesus brings Peter, James, and John up there on the mountain, and then as the guys watched, his appearance was transformed. His clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than any earthly bleach could ever make them. Now, fast, actually, not fast forward, back up to Exodus 33, and with Moses on the mountain and the Lord, here's what God said there in verse 21. He said, look, stand near me on this rock. And as my glorious presence passes by, I will hide you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. And then I'll remove my hand and let you see me from behind, but my face will not be seen. And so we see this parallel between this dazzling white, this glorious vision of Jesus on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. And the connection with the story of Moses seeing the same thing with God himself in Exodus 33. So this is more evidence, again, as the disciples and the gospel writers like Mark are writing this in retrospect, I'm sure they're even realizing as they're writing this out, oh my goodness, Jesus is God. Jesus isn't just the son of God. Jesus isn't just a prophet or a good moral teacher. But Jesus is being connected in this story, in this transfiguration story. He's being connected to God himself in the Old Testament. And that shouldn't be surprising to any of us today, because today we know that Jesus is God. But this is what the disciples are just learning right here in this passage. But the question that you might be asking is, why are Moses and Elijah in the story Right? It says that Moses, right after this you know, transfiguration, Jesus turns into this glowing, dazzling white uh, vision like God did for, for Moses. 
But then, but then Elijah and Moses all of a sudden appear and start talking to Jesus. It seems a little bit random. And for most of us, we're probably saying, is there anything meaningful about that? Is there anything significant about Moses and Elijah, Elijah showing up? And to get the answer, and this is really cool, go to the very last verses of the Old Testament. The last book of the Old Testament is Malachi. And the last verses are chapter four, verses four to six. Here, literally, here's how the Old Testament ends. This is really cool. It says, remember to obey the law of Moses, my servant, all the decrees and regulations that I gave him on Mount Sinai for all Israel. Look, I'm sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives, his preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. So isn't it interesting that the very last verses of the Old Testament reference Moses and Elijah, and here we are in Mark chapter 9, and we're seeing this picture of this transformed Jesus. He's finally revealing who he really is, that he's God. And Moses and Elijah show up, just like Malachi said, Moses and Elijah show up. Now, some people some people think that Moses represents the law, the Old Testament law, and Elijah represents the prophets. And that's true in a sense, but probably more than anything, Moses and Elijah showing up just represents two of the great prophets of the Old Testament. And so here these two great prophets are literally in Mark 9, 4, literally having a conversation with Jesus, literally talking to Jesus. And this shows, really, it shows the continuity of Jesus with the Old Testament. There's not some awkward break between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus is coming to fulfill the Old Testament. Jesus is in essence, he's the last of the great prophets, Moses, Elijah, lots of others, but those are the two big ones. And now here Jesus is, think about what a prophet's job was. A prophet's job was to reveal God to the people. So Moses did that a little bit with the Ten Commandments. You know, the Ten Commandments are a partial revelation of God's heart. It's 10 really important things on his heart and mind, but it's certainly not all of it. And, you know, Elijah revealed a lot of other things about God. Elijah and the other prophets, they, they spoke on God's behalf to the people, revealing God's heart to the people. But these prophets, and really all of the prophets of the Old Testament, fade in comparison with Jesus, the ultimate prophet, the ultimate revelator of who God is. Because Jesus didn't just come with words about God. He didn't just come with a message about God. Jesus came as God. Jesus is God. That's what the author Paul in Colossians chapter 1 is talking about. He says that Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. And then later in verse 19, it says, For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And so, Moses is a great prophet of God. Elijah is a great prophet of God in the sense that they told the people about God. They tried to communicate God's heart to the people. But Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God to the people because Jesus isn't just speaking for God. Jesus is God. And I love how the pillar commentary says it. It says, the presence of Moses and Elijah 
thus signifies that Jesus is not a walk-on in the divine economy, nor is his revelation as Son of God an anomaly or arbitrary expression of his divine will. Rather, the presence of Moses and Elijah as forerunners attests to the culmination of a purposeful revelation of God's Son with the history of Israel. So this transfiguration account isn't just a like a climax for the gospel of Mark, it's a climax for the story of the Bible. I mean, if you read it from Genesis all the way through to this point, you're, we're opening our eyes now to this plan of God all along, that he was going to reveal himself through his son. And look at what happens next. Back to Mark chapter 9, verse 5, it says, Peter exclaimed, Rabbi, It's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He said this because he didn't really know what else to say, for they were all terrified. And then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, Moses and Elijah were gone, and they saw only Jesus with them. Now, there's so much to talk about in this section. It's actually kind of funny to me. It's, it's funny that Mark says that they didn't know what else to say. It's almost like Peter is blurting out nonsense. I don't know if you've ever been there before where maybe you're in the presence of somebody that is you know, famous or something, and you, you, you kind of trip over your words a little bit. You don't know what to say. This is what Peter's doing. He, it's not just Jesus's transfiguration, which was pretty incredible, obviously. So that was... I mean, striking Peter and James and John, striking them with awe. Much like Isaiah's encounter with God in the Old Testament, where he just had to fall face down. He he just said, I'm unworthy. I'm unworthy. And I live among a people who are unworthy. And, And we see the same kind of response to the presence of God, but also because Moses and Elijah were there. So that had to be pretty cool for Peter too. And so what does his anxiety in the presence of God cause him to want to do? He just wants to get to work. And maybe some of you can relate to that. You don't really know how to relate to God. Maybe you're not quite comfortable with God yet. You're still trying to learn who he is. And so you're more comfortable working for him than just being in his presence. What a good lesson for us, by the way. Because what what God said from heaven, and it sounds a lot like what he said at Jesus' baptism. He said, this is my dearly loved son. And now he says the exact same thing. He says, this is my dearly loved son, but he, but he adds this other thing. He says, listen to him. It's almost like he's saying to Peter, Peter, don't try to do anything. Don't try to busy yourself with activity. You're missing a moment here. Just listen to him. I want you to pay attention to him. In fact, it's really cool because it says that suddenly when they looked around, Moses and Elijah were gone, and they saw only Jesus with them. So isn't this cool? We're we're seeing this transfiguration of Jesus. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up this mountain. It's reminiscent of, of Moses and Mount Sinai. Jesus reveals his glory to these three, just like God revealed his glory to Moses. And now what happens? You know, Moses and Elijah were there showing this connection with the Old Testament and God's plan all along. But now he's got, they're gone. He, they disappear and only Jesus is left. It's real simple what's happening here. The father is drawing attention to Jesus. Even Moses and Elijah were there for one purpose, to draw attention to Jesus. 
Now, I think it's helpful for us to stop for a second and think about what are the things in our lives today that can distract us from just listening to Jesus, the things that can keep us from from really seeing Jesus. You know, for these disciples, uh, Moses and Elijah were like all-stars. Moses and Elijah were the celebrities. And Moses and Elijah were, were people that really could have distracted them if they weren't careful. That's what happened for the Pharisees. The Pharisees were so into the law and the prophets. The Pharisees, the religious teachers, you know, the bad guys of the Gospel of Mark, we've been, we've been seeing this in eight, nine chapters now. Those guys were distracted. They were missing Jesus. They were so focused on Moses and Elijah and the like that they were missing Jesus. Now, there's nothing wrong with Moses and Elijah, but they're not the point. They're not the pinnacle. They're not, they're not what it's all about. Maybe it's good to stop and think for yourself right now, what are the things in your church or in your daily life, maybe even good things that can distract you from the ultimate thing? You know, these good things, even our family, for example, for some people, family becomes a distraction, keeping people from Jesus, even though family is good, just like Moses and Elijah were good. Family is good, but it can sometimes distract us from the ultimate thing. So maybe you can stop and pause if you talk about this with your, with your family or with a small group or one-on-one with, one with a mentor and make a list and say, what are some of those things that are keeping me from Jesus, even good things that are keeping me from Jesus. Because what the Father is saying to Peter, James, and John is stop working, stop, stop trying to busy yourself with religious things, right? Peter said, let's build a shelter for you three. And the Father said, just stop, just stop and listen. Let's finish the section. Verse 9, it says, as they went back down the mountain, He told them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And so they kept it to themselves, but they often asked each other what he meant by rising from the dead. And then they asked him, why do teachers of religious law insist that Elijah must return before the Messiah comes? And Jesus responded, Elijah is indeed coming first to get everything ready. Yet why do the scriptures say that the Son of Man must suffer greatly and be treated with utter contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they chose to abuse him, just as the scriptures predicted. Now that's the end of our section for today's lesson, but I want to talk about kind of the importance of some of these words here, because I don't know if you picked up on the interaction and what's really going going on here between Jesus and his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. They just had this incredible revelation of the true nature of Jesus, that he's God himself. And remember, last week we saw that he revealed that he was going to have to suffer and die. And so coming down the mountain, Jesus is trying to focus them in on what this whole experience was about. And what was it about? It was about him. It was about Jesus. And so he said, look, I don't, I don't want you to tell anyone about any of this until I'm risen from the dead. And, and they're confused about what he means by being risen from the dead because they still don't fully understand what it means that he's the Messiah and, that was, and, and what the Messiah was supposed to do. So Jesus is still trying to teach them about who he is, who Jesus is. He's, still, he's trying to teach them the truth 
of of God's plan of salvation all along through Jesus, through his suffering and death, this whole idea of what it meant to really be the Messiah. But did you notice the question that they asked in the midst of all that, right? Jesus is trying to get them to focus on him. Remember, only Jesus was left at the top of the mountain. Elijah and Moses were gone. Only Jesus was left. And he's trying to bring them to this clarity about who Jesus is. But did you notice their question? They said, why do teachers of religious law insist that Elijah Elijah must return before the Messiah comes? Isn't that funny? It's like, he's trying to get them to focus on Jesus, and they're still asking questions about Elijah. And not just Elijah, they're, they're drawing attention to the teachings of the religious leaders, the Pharisees, that we've been talking about, that Jesus has been going toe-to-toe with this whole time. They're trying to understand the, the teachers of the religious law and what they say about Elijah. And what did the father just say to them? He just said, just listen to Jesus. This is my son. Listen to him. And, and the disciples are still listening to the religious teachers. The disciples are still distracted by other voices in their culture or in their church instead of like really understanding that Jesus has the answers and he's literally right there in, in front of them. And so the father says, listen to him. And they're asking him questions, not about what he said. They're asking him questions about what the teachers of religious law have to say, which is about Elijah. So they're, they're fixated on Elijah some more. They're fixated on the Old Testament rather than just listening to Jesus. And Jesus' response is so gracious. He's so patient with these guys. But, but notice he says, he, he comes back at them with this. He says, yet why do scriptures say that the Son of Man must suffer greatly and be treated with utter contempt? So look, they keep trying to bring it back to tradition, oral tradition, and teachers of religious law. It's like they couldn't help themselves And Jesus is trying to get them to focus more on what scripture has said. And more than that, he's trying to get them to focus on Jesus. He says, why do the scriptures say, forget about what the teachers of religious law says, say, why do the scriptures say that the son of man must suffer? Remember, he had just told them that in the previous section. We saw that last week. And now he's bringing them back to that. He, he really wants them to understand who he is and what his plan is. And that's why he brought them up to the mountaintop in the first place. He brought them up to this, this incredible vision of this transfiguration to show them who he really is and why he's really come. See, what we're learning in this passage of Scripture is that the Bible and God the Father, and God the Son, it's all putting a spotlight on the person and work of Jesus. Not Moses, not Elijah, not religious leaders, Pharisees, or pastors, or maybe your, you know, your favorite Christian influencer out there. It's all putting a focus, instead of on all those things, it's so easy to be distracted by those things. It's all putting a focus on the person and work of Jesus. And as we continue to study the Gospel of Mark, and really the, the entire Bible, but we're studying the Gospel of Mark, it's just going to continue drilling down on who is Jesus, what's he all about. You know, his person, he is not just fully human, but he's fully God. That's part of, that's part of the reason for this transfiguration. He's, he's fully God. Now, the disciples don't quite get that yet, but they'll get it 
as they continue on, the further they go, they'll get it. And the more, the more you read the New Testament, you understand that they, they're putting two and two together and, oh, wait, I get it. I get who Jesus is. He isn't just a, a good prophet. He isn't just a good teacher. He's actually God himself. And so that's, that's what it means that his personhood matters, the person of Jesus, but also the work of Jesus, that he's good, that he's perfect, that he's sinless. And that he's going to go to the cross. He's going to have to suffer and go to the cross, which is blowing their minds. That's not what they thought the Messiah was going to have to do. But ultimately, they're going to find out, and we'll see this at the end of the Gospel of Mark, they're going to find out that he didn't stay dead, that he died, but then he rose again, and he proved his authority over sin and death in the grave. And what we're going to see, and this is, we see this even in the story of Peter and James and John, is that whenever somebody turns to Jesus... It's like the veil is taken away. You know, in Moses' story, if you go back to Exodus, he comes down off of the mountain after that Exodus chapter 33 experience where God revealed himself and he comes down glowing because he had just been with this radiant God of the universe. And here we have Peter, James, and John coming down off the mountain, and they're not glowing, but they just had that same experience, this radiant God of the universe, Jesus, showing himself, and they still don't fully get it, but they will. Eventually, they will. They'll get it. Paul talks about it like this in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 16 to 18. He says, but whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of God. And the Lord, who is spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. And that word changed right there is literally the same word that Mark uses in chapter 9. It's the, it's the word for transfiguration that we use for transfiguration. And this is what God wants for each one of us, as we continue to read his word, as we continue to interact with him on a personal level, like Peter and James and John got to do, is he wants to just more and more take that veil away. He wants us to see that, that Jesus is more than a prophet of God, that he is God. He is the Messiah. He is the one who came and suffered and died and rose from the dead so that we too may be transformed into his image.